If you're uh, unfamiliar with our story and just been with us here in the recent days, here's what we're doing. We're staying through the book of Nehemiah. We're going, trying to do chapter by chapter and not getting through each one at a time. The story goes back into the Old Testament era. The Jews had come into the promised land. They're in the promised land for a number of years. They come in through Joshua, through the book of Judges, and they're living there for a period of time even with the kings uh, under David and Solomon and uh, Saul and then all the generations afterwards. Something that happened in the Jewish history that, uh, again, it plays into the whole story, is that the Jews brought into all of their worship in the Old Testament during that time, even though they had some good kings, they had some bad kings, and every so often they'd get into a lot of idolatry. And uh, in that idolatry, God was offended by it and eventually said, if you keep this up, I'm going to discipline you and take you out of the land. And so the tribes kept on doing this, and they end up eventually both the northern tribe and the southern tribe uh, country end up being defeated by enemies and taken out of the land. There's a period of time that for 70 years they're outside the land. Um, Warren had asked me to just make a reminder that the reason that they're out for 70 years is because remember that they were supposed to every so many years. They were supposed to every seven years. They were supposed to let things revert. And then every seven of seven or 49th year was called the year of... Jubilee. And the land was supposed to do what during that period of time? Just laid totally dormant. And they were supposed to just let it refresh, those types of things. Well, they missed 70 of those Jubilee years during this period of time under the kings. And so what happens is God is going to recover his land of rest, and he has them out of the land for 70 years, exactly the number of Jubilee years that they had misappropriated. They had not followed through. And so God's giving the land rest. They're out of the period, uh, out of that area for that extensive period of time. And so they finally come back and they get back into the land. They're starting to rebuild and so some things are going well. They get a temple not as pretty. They get the city started to be built and then they're stopped because some of the pressure from surrounding uh, warlords say that they can't build, they can't build and so they report to the emperor that the, the Jews are, are rebellious people. He stops them from building. Nehemiah shows up I'm on the scene and Nehemiah is working for the emperor in his court and he has a real burden for Israel and the Jews who are back there. And so he asked if he can go back and start rebuilding and keep an eye on things. He's appointed governor. He goes back. He gets there in chapter 2. He starts the project because he knows that the first thing they have to do is they have to get the walls done. If they're going to secure the city, they've got to have walls because that was so important back in those days. And so he starts the project and gets the people working who are used to no walls who are used to being discouraged, defeated. And so he gets them to build this, these walls in 52 days. But there's problems as they're going through. Chapters 4, 5, 6. Talk about the problems that they face as they're going through the project. And uh, basically they're the enemies, the warlords, threaten them in chapter 4. And they say, hey, you've got to stop, you've got to stop. But they keep on building. Chapter 5, the, uh, the internally there's some conflicts between the Jews. They're, there's, they're united in the task, but they're not united in spirit. And so some problems come out because the rich were getting wealthier off of the poorer folk and absconding of their lands and making them become servants so they could eat. And so Nehemiah has to deal with that. Chapter 6, Nehemiah continues the building. They're almost done. And the enemies, the warlords outside and some inside, they start attacking him personally. They go after him on an individual basis. They're going to try to get it to stop. And so what we looked at last week is they're, they're causing these attacks in chapter 6 against Nehemiah personally, against the leadership, their goal is to cause people to fear. 
cause Nehemiah to fear and get people to, to basically um, stop trusting Nehemiah. And so in chapter, uh, chapter 6, starting with verse 2 and 4, they try to trick him. They tell him they want to meet at Ono. It's a resort. Back in Bible days, it was the resort that everybody wanted to go to. And he, they said, come meet with us. But Nehemiah realizes that they mean to do harm. They send several invitations. He refuses. They send more invitations. He refuses. And so then they get so mad, they send an open letter. They want it read they do get it read before everybody at the building site. And uh, in this open letter, they're accusing Nehemiah. The reason he won't get together with him, he's a rebel. He's trying to become the king. He's trying to take over the region. It's, you know, we've heard it said, but they don't quote the sources. Uh, typical rumor. And so he, they, they say he's trying to revolt and you people are going to be in trouble. And uh, they say that Nehemiah hired prophets. It's ironic that they accuse him of the very thing that we'll see in a few moments that they did. Anyway, they, they claim he hires prophets, and so they repeat this. And Nehemiah's response, as we ended up last week, was real simple. Nehemiah just says in verses 8 and 9, he says, and we, we didn't get here, we talked about the rumors last week, so let's just pick up in verse 8 of chapter 6. Here's Nehemiah's response to the letter. Then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as you say, but you imagine them, or you feign them out of your heart. For they, they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work, that it might not be done, and therefore God strengthened my hands. So he's, he's admitting something. All all these attacks have worn him down. Verse 9. He's, he's start, it's starting to just build up, build up, build up. And he says they did cause some fear and apprehension. But I responded in this manner. Okay, I didn't retaliate. I sent a letter saying it's not true and that's as much as I'm going to do. And so he denies the accusations. He turns to prayer and he goes back to work. It's very simple what he does. Okay, when the rumors are coming, you can only do so much that you can't change people's minds if they choose to believe misinformation or a lack of information or innuendos. And so what he does is he says, okay, I'm not going to retaliate. It's just not true. Go to work, pray about it, and just maintain the course. The guy who has good priorities. That it's not easy, but that's what he does. And I think that's what you and I need to take from it, is saying, okay, when people are accusing us of things that are falsehoods, don't retaliate. Leave it with the Lord. Keep moving forward and just make sure that any accusations have no basis uh, of clinging to you. Then what they do is this. The next one is very subtle. Watch what happens. Verse 10. Afterward I came unto the house of Shimei, the son of Deliah, and the son of Mehetabel, who was shut up. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us shut the doors of the temple. For they will come to slay you. Yea, in the night will they come to slay you. And I said, Should such a man as I flee? Who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And lo, I perceived that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me for to buy in Sam Ballad had what? Had hired him. Okay, same thing they accused him of doing. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so and sin that they might have matter of an evil report that they might reproach me. My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sambalad according to these their works and on the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear. Boy, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. What they do is he visits this priest who is in the temple. He says that the priest is shut up. We don't 
don't know what that means other than he's there. Is he ill? He can't move? Is he an invalid? Is he there because he had done something and he was confined to those quarters? We don't know. But Nehemiah goes to this fellow and talks with him. And this fellow, whatever it is saying, you need to come into, when he says come into this place, he's talking about the holy place. Come into this temple proper area. Now you know immediately when you hear that, you know that Nehemiah can't do that. Because he's not a priest. He's not a Levite. So they're giving him information. They're giving him a request. They're saying, God is telling us to do this. But this vision, this prophecy they claim, it's what? It's contrary to the word of God. Does God give contrary information? No. No, and so Nehemiah is able to perceive that, hey, what they're giving me, what they're saying, and by the way, okay, they're claiming prophecy. And if you remember the last verse we just read, it's not just one guy. There's Noadiah, plus there's other prophets. So there's a group of them. There's a number of them claiming that God gave us this prophecy. God gave us this prophecy. And Nehemiah is quick. Nehemiah is saying, no, God couldn't have given you a prophecy to contradict himself. God wouldn't tell, you, tell, all, tell all of you to tell me to go against. You're tricking me. By the way, if I go in to the temple proper, what are you going to accuse me of? That's the point. That's this whole thing. They're saying, come in, come in, come in, be under our protection. As soon as he goes in, they're going to turn around, they're going to say, he sinned, he sinned, he deserves to die. And so he understands what they're doing is they're trying to set him up. And uh, basically they're lying about the whole thing. And so his response is absolutely not. I can't do it. Oh, by the way, his response goes a little bit further than just what you're wrong. His response covers this way. Okay? He knows that what they're saying is wrong because it contradicts the word of God. Okay? He knows that. And only priests can go in there. He rejects the counsel for another reason. The advice that he has given, God has not been giving this type of advice all along to flee, to flee, to flee. He's making it very clear, y'all, should I flee? God has led me here. God has made it very clear I'm supposed to be here. God has led up to this point, and now you're saying God's telling me to run away and quit the job? I don't think so. It'd be contrary to my character, should such a one as I take off, because I've sacrificed. And by the way, at the end of chapter 4 and 5, was he personally sacrificing for this project? Big time. He was paying for and subsidizing a lot of the people and a lot of the project. And he's saying, so you're telling me I should give this all up and that what I should flee? That, that's contrary to what I've been doing. That's contrary to my nature and the way God has led. And so he makes it very clear, okay, I'm not going to be doing this. It's contrary to the word of God. It's contrary to the way that God has led to this point. It's contrary to my characteristic, my character. And so he doesn't do it. And uh, basically he prays again. If you notice what the text is, he's going to turn and says, God, verse 14, think upon this, and he returns to the work. So all of their subtle attacks, all their personal attacks have fallen, on to, uh, have fallen off. They have thrown the darts, but he's resisted the fiery darts. Now, that doesn't mean it didn't bother him. He's already mentioned, I need to be strengthened. He already mentioned that they've put fear in our hearts. So it bothered, bothered him internally, but he continued the task. And you've been there. You've had that happen. You've had people 
people attack, accuse you, and it bothers you. You lose some sleep, but it's a question of what do you do? Not how you feel, but what do you do? And so he basically moves forward with this whole project. Then there's another attack, and this one's real subtle. It's in verse 15. Okay, it goes on that they're causing division. They're trying to, they're trying to undermine him from internally. Look at verse 15. So the wall was finished, and he's wrapped it up, okay? He gives the time, 52 days. It came to pass that when all of our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes. They were discouraged that we had completed the task. For they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came unto them. We've heard about Tobiah. Samballat and Tobiah are, are twins in this effort at trying to destroy him. Samballat um, and Tobiah are the enemies, so to speak. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him because he was the son of law of Shechaniah, the son of Era. He was the son, and his son, Johanan, had taken a daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me and uttered my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear. This is real subtle. This is a lot of the politics that goes on, you know, um, in politics. Are there often leaks? Okay, okay, and so this is what's happening. There's leaks taking place. The walls are totally done. The enemies are not happy about it. There's a phrase. Look at the phrase. What did they attribute, what did the enemies attribute the success of the building project to? Nehemiah's leadership? The, uh, the, the zeal of the people? The enemies attribute it to, it was a work of God. The unsaved, the, un, the, uh, the, uh, the lost, the heathen, they saw that this could only be done by the hand of God. I find that interesting that they make that comment. That they see that this was the hand of God. That the hand of God thwarted all of their, their attacks. It was obvious that what they were trying to do God had, had intervened and give Nehemiah the wisdom, help the people through their trials. Because seriously, those people were at such odds at one time. How did they get anything done? It was a work of God to get them to work together, even though that there had been abuses by the wealthy against the poor. It's amazing that all these attacks were thwarted, even the, the secret ones, even the, uh, the trickery that Nehemiah's protected. They understood this was a work of God. They could see that God's hand was in this whole thing, which is, to me, very, very interesting that they would understand that. Their attacks now are going to be an ongoing attack attack, trying to create division with the people within the city. Now remember, you have the nobles that are in the city, and Nehemiah has to work with the nobles. Nehemiah's position, keep this in mind if you don't remember, what is his political position? He's the governor. So he's got to work with the nobility. He's got to be, he's going to have to do more than just get the walls built. In fact, we've already read in the last chapter, he's going to be the governor for at least 12 years. So he's there, he gets the project done. He's got 11 plus years to be going and working with these people. And so Tobiah is going to start a campaign against him, just very subtle, very subtle, not talking against Nehemiah openly, but talking against Nehemiah in, you know, in the corners, in the foyers of, of the city, and trying to just undermine him and tell others, you know, he's not this. And he's going to have, they're going to have a continuous correspondence between Tobiah and some of the nobles of the Jews. Tobiah is a heathen by Jewish standards. He is the, you know, an outsider, an enemy, and so he's going to have some conversations with a lot, and the whole desire is to put Nehemiah in fear, wear him down, just wear him down by these subtle attacks. And again, we, um, we need to remember some of the ties that are given here. Tobiah is an Ammonite. 
Okay, he has sworn historical enemy of the Jews. The Ammonites show up all the way back in the book of Judges, as we'll see today, that they show up, they're attacking, there's a problem between the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Jews. It's a long-standing, historical, generational type of a conflict. Tobiah's an Ammonite, and Tobiah, it says, that he, is, he married a Jewish girl. He's related to some Jewish nobility. By the way, is that kosher? For the for Old Testament, is that kosher for these Jews to be marrying the Ammonites? Absolutely not. And not only did he marry, but his son he marries to another, to another Jewish noble. So there's a lot of this intermarriage that had taken place, and the intermarriage now is being used by Tobiah. He's trying to get the people that he's related to to be more loyal to him than to the Word of God. And he's using the relationships. Uh, how is that often said? Blood is thicker than water. Okay, so you have these situations where the, he's taking advantage of blood relationships and ties and saying, okay, you're, you should be loyal to me. You should be working with me rather than to, with the Word of God. And so the challenge is going here. That's taking place. And Tobiah's taking advantage of it. And a lot of these people are falling prey right with it that he's feeding them lines. He's challenging them. He's creating all these problems. How do you respond when somebody who wants to undermine with all these types of efforts. Well, Nehemiah, let's, let's just take him for the whole chapter, okay? Make sure that what we are doing, the way we act, is for the glory of God. If people are going to accuse us, which they will, okay? It's going to happen. People at work, people in your family relationship, they're going to accuse you of some things. Remember what Peter said about the accusations. He said, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles or the un unsaved, whereas where they speak evil against you as an evildoer, that they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. What's he mean by that? He's very simply saying that you make sure that even though they may accuse you, nothing sticks that you are portraying a godly character that they may attack, they may, they may you know, wonder about, but that godly character may make an impact that they might even get born again because you're a consistent witness. He goes a little bit further, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, twice in that same book he talks about, it. as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So whatever we do, live a above board. Make sure that we're like a Nehemiah, that even though people may accuse us and attack us, they may say that you're in it for the money. Your, your life shows that you're not in it for the money. You're being charitable. That you're in it for popularity. They look real closely. They can see, nah, nah, you've sacrificed. You've served other people. You're humble spirit rather than a lordship spirit. Make sure we have character that honors God. If attacked, respond with courage and confidence. Courage in God, confidence in God. Let God take the battle face to face. You just move forward doing what's right. Don't attack back. Do not render evil for evil. Because he goes on to say in that passage, he says, vengeance is... That's up to God. Let it up to God. In fact, let your life and labors defend the criticisms. Don't quit. Continue in what God has called you to do. And think of the consequences. If you were to quit, then what would happen, Nehemiah? You're that close to the project. If you listen to them, go into the temple, they accuse you, what's going to happen? The integrity of the entire project is going to be questioned. So what we need to do is not let fears cloud our thinking. 
which was the attempt. That was the whole goal. It was the satanic attack was to cause fear, to cause people to be fearful of other people's reactions, to cause fear of internal, external attacks. And so remain confident in the Lord. Run to the Lord with your fears and weaknesses at such moment. Nehemiah did time and again. He's saying, okay, strengthen me. They caused us to fear. God, I need your help. I need your help. It's bothering me. I'm not sleeping, but I need your assistance. Evaluate all counsel you are given. Evaluate all counsel you are given by the Word of God. Evaluate the decisions you're going to make by the Word of God. In the middle of pressure, is it easy to react and not act when you're under the gun? Okay? If you're under the gun, make sure you evaluate. By the way, it, what does it take? What it, what's involved if all of a sudden you've, you're under a pressure situation at work? They're accusing you. They're attacking you. It's false. And they're attacking you and you say, I want to act and not react. I need, I need to evaluate. What does that require you to do? Okay, you've got to stop and think. You've got to stop and think. And it requires time. It takes a little bit of time. So be cautious, be careful. Use those tools that God has given you, your Bible, your brain, and then some time before you make a reaction. Make sure you give any and all credit to God. Give God the credit, which Nehemiah is clearly going to do, and remain courageous in the face of oppositions. In the face of attacks, in the face of questions, just remain courageous in the Lord, doing what is right, and keep this in mind. If you say, but I've got opposition... If you got opposition for doing what's right, don't be surprised. Okay? Because if you're doing what's right, you will face opposition. Okay? John chapter 15, 16, that he said, whatever they do to the master, they're going to do to his servants as well. So don't be surprised by opposition. It's going to happen. It's gonna, people are going to question. People are going to attack. They're going to accuse. That's part of the nature, part of the life of a believer. So it's going to happen in your life. Okay, here's where we go. We go on a whole new... Let, let me see if I can ask, ask this. We're going to run the credits. How many of you, you watch a movie, you watch a TV show, do you like to sit there and watch all the credits at the end? What do you normally do? What do you do? Change the channel and find something else to watch, or this is now my snack moment. The credits usually aren't the things that we're... Unless unless we have a question about somebody that we want to find out. But typically, we don't watch the credits. Okay, they're kind of the free moment. Nehemiah is going to run credits in chapter 7, chapter 11, and chapter 12. They're all tied together. He's going to run credits, and he's going to list a lot of people. And so you're going to see a lot of names. Just like with those movie credits, our tendency when we start reading a lot of names is to do what with chapter 7, 11, and 12? Skip over them. Okay, part of the reason is we can't pronounce the names. Okay. And so you can laugh at me when I'm making the pronunciations. So if we were to read them out loud together, you would say big name, big name, big name too. Okay. So he's going to give us this. But there's something here. If God has said, run the credits, put the names down, let them be inspired and recorded, there's something that God has in mind for us to learn from that. Okay, Not just how to pronounce names that are strange to us, but there's something that's given in these chapters, chapter 7, 11, and 12, that have to do with marking down these people. There's, there's very subtle lessons, but they're there. And so if we jump into them, it's not the most, most earth-shaking lessons, but they're there. Here's the issue. Here's the concern. We start in chapter 7. The walls are done. Look at, he says, we've got a problem. We finished the project, and the project is great, but now that the wall is all done, we have another 
another problem. It came to pass when the wall was built, I had set up the doors, the porters, the singers, the Levites were appointed. I gave my brother Hananiah. Hananiah, uh, Hananiah, and then Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he is faithful, feared God. I said unto them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun be hot, and while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them, and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch, and every one to be over, his, over against his house. Why? Why is he doing this? Verse 4. Verse 4 gives you the reason. So if we stop there, we would, we would miss it. Now, the city was what? Okay. But the people were... Okay, they got a problem. They got a problem. They got all this expanse that's secured. But who's going to protect it? So they built a city, but they don't have people to live in the city. That's a big problem. It's an ironic problem, by the way. Think about this. This city is, by Jewish thinking, is Jerusalem a big, time, uh, big in their thinking? Okay, why? It's the capital of Judaism. What else is in Jerusalem? The temple. This is their home place for worship. What do the Jews often want to do? Those who lived outside the region, what was their historical pattern? Make pilgrimages, yeah, come back and visit Jerusalem. That was, you know, that was required three, time, three times a year in the law. So why is it Jerusalem doesn't have many people living in it? And Nehemiah, who's the governor of the region, has just reestablished the capital. But the problem is we got a lot of people wandering around this big town. And what are we going to do? Especially, we've built the walls for defense. What, what does that mean? If the walls are built for defense... Could somebody still scale the walls? Sure. So what do you have to have? You got to have lookouts. You have to have guards. But we don't have that many people. So what are we going to do? And so that's a real problem with him. In fact, he says not only the city is large, but look at the end of verse 4. Something else is a problem in Jerusalem. Even if we got a lot of people living in there, they don't have many houses. Okay, they don't, have, they don't have much there for people to live in. So he's got, an, he's got an economic problem. He's got a population problem. He's got to rebuild the city's commerce. But how are you going to build commerce if there's no safety? If you're a vendor from afar, do you want to go to Jerusalem if there's no security? The answer is no. And so they've got a very practical problem. Okay, the walls are up, but they still need to take care of the operations within the walls. So what he does is he says at the very beginning of the chapter, I need to appoint guards and watchmen. And he sets up a couple of the people, whether it's a repeat, something it's two different, something it's the same one, but a repeat. Uh, the reason that he chose these folk is not just because of he's my brother, okay? But he says there's a reason why he appointed them. Okay, he's a godly man. He's, so he uses the fact that these guys are, or guy, are, they fear the Lord. Why would they need them? Well, that's an easy one, because they need some security. Nehemiah can't do anything. He needs security chiefs. Because there's normal community issues, you need police force, okay, because people. You have enemies outside the city. You got pilgrims traveling to the city with a lot of bandits and, and people. You need a security system. You need some police. You need a government in place. And so this is very practical, and he's got to deal with it. Okay, he's got the city, he's got the wall, but now he's got to get the people going. So what happens is he says this. First thing I'm going to do, until I get the people in, we've got to close the gates. It was very normal that gates in these cities would be open what time of the day? Daytime. Starting when? Sunup. Okay, because business starts at sunup. Okay, and you keep the gates open until... Okay, Nehemiah changes that. 
Nehemiah says, I'm going to change that, not coming up at sunup. When does he say gates open? Okay, around noon, the heat of the day. Why does he push off gates being opened? I mean, it's just, it's a very, just think it through. The enemies can't get in so that we're secured and we can regulate this because the enemies, if they were going to attack at sunup, where does that mean that they've positioned themselves before that? You're real close by. Well, if we're waiting until noon, if they're going to be laying out there, we're going to see them for a period of time. So it's just very simple, very practical that he's doing this and he's delaying it. And he's doing that because he doesn't have enough guards to keep it going 24-7. It's like a business that says, okay, I want to be open 24-7, but you better have, you got to have people. Okay. How many days can you do 24-7? You can't do, <laughs> you can't do a full week of 24-7. So he's, he's being very practical. He's just saying, okay, we got a problem here and I'm going to take care of it. And then he ends up in chapter 11. By chapter 11, now I give you this figure just to give you an idea how expansive the city is. In chapter 11, he appoints 172 gatekeepers to keep an eye on the gates. Okay, that means you've got a lot of people. That means their security is, is a big thing. And so he starts off until he can get a population in the city. By the way, it, it's, it's very simple, very simple business, very simple church. It's very simple everything. If you're going to do anything, you've got to evaluate your resources. Your resources are typically three things. They're people, pesos, and place. Okay? That is basically finances, the folk, and the facilities. You can have all the intentions you want to do a ministry, but if you don't have the funds, or you don't have the people to do the ministry, or you don't have the place to do the ministry, it doesn't work. Okay, and so it's the same thing that he's got here. I need, I've got now the place. We put that in, in, in spot. We've got some funding going. He's going to talk about his funding and the king's funding. But I don't have the people in the city. I've got a lot of people available, but a lot of them are outside. They're in the country. We've got to do something to populate the city. And we've got to have homes, the place. We've got to play for people to live. And so until that happens, he's got to secure the gates, only open part of the day. And then once he starts getting the people in, he says, okay, we need the beginning of our security system is 172 gatekeepers that we're going to have. And he talks about in chapter 11, as he moves through this problem, how he puts them, he gives them shifts, and he assigns them to be right near their homes. Why would that make sense? Okay, I'm going to put you as a gatekeeper, Marlon. You're going to work at that gate right over here. You live here. You keep an eye on that gate. And your family's living here. So what does that do? Okay, there's incentive. How so? He's protecting his own family. So Nehemiah is real wise in this. He's got limited resources. He gives them tremendous incentive. He says, okay, they've got to take a personal interest in this. And by the way, is it true or false? Historically, most of the times that invasions came and were most successful, they often came from somebody being bribed from within. Okay, and so he's making sure that's not going to happen. Okay, that they they have reason for it. So he puts these people, gives you a sense of what's going on. Here's his thing: not just securing the city. This is the bigger problem. He took care of a minor problem. It's major, but it's minor. Okay, we got to just shut down the gates. Here's the ultimate problem: we got to populate the city. 
We got to get people living within the city. Once we get people here, we got more of a workforce. Once we get people here, we've got more commerce. Once we get people here, the economy will flow and we'll be able to take care of the enemies outside and they, they won't be so inclined to attack because there's going to be a larger number they have to deal with. The question that he has or we have is why is it that the city of Jerusalem is not well populated at this moment? What's that? The wall was broken. There wasn't security before. What's that? The people have been taken away. Only, only if several tens of thousands have come back to this region. What else do you know about the city? That would make it unpleasant to live in. There's no homes. Most of them are broken down. What, what is there that would make it unpleasant to live? Do you remember we've read about it? They said that there was something filling the city. When they were halfway through, there was still much rubble and rubbish. Do you want your kids living amongst rubble and rock? That's not the typical. And they also have a problem going on. They have food shortages within the city. Okay? If you were there and there was a food, sh- uh, yeah, food shortage, where would you probably tend to live? Where there's food? Farther away outside the city. Okay, so you have all these reasons here that these people have looked and said, okay, we're we're not inclined to go go there because it's just not a great place. It is not a resort. It is not the Jerusalem you and I think of from David and Solomon and the kings. This is a, um, give me a broken down American inner city. Detroit. Okay, Detroit's real probably one of those that are big up there because it's great. You know, where there's a lot of problems that, and a lot of a lot of vacant housing. And by the way, when there's a lot of vacant housing, what usually moves in? Okay, so you don't you have more of the the undesirable element there, and so that's what they've got. Nehemiah's got to deal with that, and so he's going to say, "I got to give people reason to move into the town. We got to clean it up." We've got to get the commerce going. We've got to get, people aren't going to move in if they don't feel, what's a big thing with people with kids? They've got to feel safe. They've got to feel safe. I've got to deal with this. These are very practical areas. And so he's trying to, to take care of it. And what he, God does is you read the next few verses, God lays upon his heart, let's take a census. I've got to take a census to see what I know what, what is here. If you go to chapter 11 and look at the first couple words, uh, verses there, what he's going to do is he's going to start populating the city. He, he draws a lot or a lottery, if you would, to see one out of every ten of those in the area are going to end up moving in. It's interesting, he's the Tershatha. What's that mean? Give me the English for that. It calls, he calls himself the Tershatha on a couple occasions. It's the governor, okay, he's the ruler. Could he have ordered the people to move in? Yes, he's the governor. He has life and death decisions. But as the Tershatha, he asked for volunteers in chapter 11. Can some of you volunteer, including nobles? who would have estates otherwhere, elsewhere. And he says, can you move in? Several, a number of people volunteer to move in because they have the vision. Then he casts a lottery system that one out of ten moves in. Josephus gives us the numbers uh, from history that says that the number of people in this region that he was dealing with, and what he, we'll see it in a few minutes. But what he's trying to do is get people to move in on a permanent or at least temporary permanent system to help get the city up and running. Once the city gets up and running... Then some of them may move. But he's going to list out. That's what chapter 711 is about. He's listing out the people that are involved in trying to rebuild the city. Not just the walls, but now rebuilding the 
the whole capital program. And he remembers these people, and he writes about these people. In fact, as he starts getting his plan rolling, God reveals to him a genealogical record. A record that gives some, and he found it, where they found it, you know, we don't exactly know the exact spot, but they find in chapter 11, they find a genealogical record. And they're able now to know and to find out some more about themselves, about their families. Why in Jewish culture is this so important? Think, think through for a moment. Okay, we're talking Jerusalem, the importance of the city of Jerusalem, and a genealogical record. Okay, the inheritance. Who owns what property? That's important. What else? The priesthood. Okay, the priesthood. To find out who is a legitimate priest that can serve. Because what happens in the city of Jerusalem? This is where they're employed. Okay, by the way, when the priests serve there, what do the other people do for those priests? They provide for them. So who should be on the roster and the rolls for provisions? Okay, and so th- this has a lot of practice, and God revealed it at this moment that he finds this record so that they can determine who should be here, who should serve here, who has inheritance here. It's really important. It helps to determine the land holdings, who's the priests and Levites, who should be supported by the temple funds, who is legitimately a leader, a ruler that he can be working with as far as you know their, their ancestry, as far as their... Uh, clear, clean Jewish blood, and would help others to establish their own roots. Because remember, a lot of these people have been taken away. They have lived outside. They have migrated back in. Not maybe this generation, but the generation before. And so there's, we, we, he's trying to find, we don't operate this way, but they're trying to find pure blood. That's really important for this resettling of Jerusalem in their culture, and they would understand that. And so this timing of it, and what happens in chapter, in chapter 7 is by the time he ends up, and we'll give you the summary of it, he's going to end up with 42,360 people. That's the number that they're going to end up helping to populate and to say, okay, let's come into the city. Let's start working with the city. You folk are the ones that legitimately can work here, can live here because of your backgrounds, genealogical records. And so that's very important. In the listing that he gives in this section, he even starts including some of the families who moved here who made contributions over 100 years ago under Zerubbabel. He's going to start listing not the individual names, but the groups in chapter 7, individual names in chapter 11. And so what he does is he lists off, there was a whole bunch of people that made contributions and he doesn't forget their contributions to helping to get this city going. He mentions a lot of families and clans by name, by number and that's the bulk of what happens in this whole section of scripture. He's going to mention some who are living outside the walls of Jerusalem. Why would he commend them and put them in the credits that these people live outside the walls? They're living in the parking lot area. What contribution could they make that he considers very important to the building of the city. What's that? Okay, there's going to be the people who live in the nearby territory. It's going to be some of the the travel. What are they going to be doing out there that the people inside the city need? They're, they're growing farms. They're growing food. Okay, and so that they, they need these people. They need some people outside the city. He's going to talk about the priests. And this is very important because what is going to be, you know, every region, okay? What are the big tourist areas for our region, the tourist attractions? Do we have, we have the Amish, got Hershey, 
They're tourist trade. What's the big trade for tourist trade for the, for the city of Jerusalem back then? The temple. The temple. It was critical. And so listing off the people who are involved with it, the priests, the Levites who would help with the service, he lists the temple singers. He talks about the gatekeepers. He's giving all these, by the way, he calls them the Nethanim. Those are the temple servants. Those are the people who would do the cleaning, the janitorial work is basically what the Nethanim are. And taking care of the bread supplies for the temple, the uh, cleaning up after the animals, things of that sort. Um, then he also mentions those who couldn't prove their genealogy. He does doesn't discount them. He doesn't discard them. He knows that they can't be the ones necessarily who are going to be playing an instrumental role, role in the temple, but can they make contributions? The answer is absolutely, positively. Okay? And he mentions that these people in the credits, okay, they couldn't prove genealogy, but they still had a vested interest in contributing to the work. And he talks about the servants, um, even the servants of, of the uh, nobles from outside the region. He mentions them. And then he, in chapter 8, after he's talked about all this genealogy, they hit a feast day in chapter 8. And it's that time of the year they discover we need to celebrate a feast. We're talking about the priests. We're talking about the singers. We're talking genealogical records. And chapters 8, 9, and 10 are basically um, uh, uh, kind of a shift. Okay, we've talked about getting people ready for a feast. Oh, by the way, a feast day came and we celebrated. Then chapter 11 goes back to, then I return to the problem of populating the city. And so chapters 7 and 11 are are together, but there's a parenthesis in there about celebrating the feast that we'll get into next time. What we have from it is this. Nehemiah acknowledged and appreciated the contributions of many, many people. And he acknowledged that. Some who could not prove their ancestry, but he acknowledged they made a contribution. Though they didn't have the same positions, they still made effort and, and helped. He was one who protected the integrity of the worship center. By Jewish uh, rule, they had to prove genealogy in order to be involved in that worship practice. And so he valued the integrity of worship. It wasn't just they wanted to be there and they had a good heart. They had to also have the family background. That was by their law that they had to go by it. And he appoints people not just because they're related. He appoints people based upon what was their relationship, what was their character like, how was it between them and God. That relationship was critical. And so he goes on in chapter 11. Chapter 11 picks up the theme. And in this theme as it develops, he starts talking about the different people. And he lists out the people who volunteered to live in the city. Then they cast the lots. One out of ten is mentioned in chapter 11. Josephus tells us that the population surrounding this central area was at that time about a million people. That's quite a few people that have been back there now. And so Nehemiah is shooting for basically 100,000 people to populate the city and to keep it going. Now, some of them would be going in and out of the city like the Levites, but that's his goal. He knows what he needs. And so Nehemiah doesn't order it, but then he talks about all these different people. And so the bulk of the chapter of chapter 12 lists out those who and the numbers of those who were in the city, what some of them did, and he lists a lot of names. And it's kind of a repetition of chapter 7, except except for it gives some very clear specifics. And so some who lived outside the city would contribute. The bottom line is that he says that all these people had a role. They were different in their roles, but they made a difference. The, co- the point I want us to catch and conclude on this, not everyone was required to live in the city, okay? But they still had an important role. Can we make an analogy to that? 
Does everybody in the body of Christ have the same job? No. But do they make contributions? Yeah, we don't have to do the same things. We just don't have to be, be doing the exact same job. We don't have to be in the exact same ministry. Okay? For some of you, music's your thing. For some of us, music is not our thing. Okay? But who, so who's more, who makes a big, bigger contribution? You can't go that way. You can't say that. We can't say, okay, if I'm involved in this ministry, everybody should be involved in the same ministry I'm involved in. Not true. Not true. Not everybody had to live within the city walls. And so they made contributions with a wide variety, and I think God in his wisdom is giving Nehemiah practical information to help him to get this city up and running. It's one thing to rebuild it, but what good is it if they build it and they don't come? Okay? He wants them to come. He's got to provide all this. So Nehemiah and his leadership is just outstanding what he does in this area. Let's stop. Let's pick up next week from there and talk about some practical areas uh, about that, that listing of some of the specific th- details he gives.